The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 8, okay? We're continuing this week in our series. It's focused on the miracles of Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen him, you have seen the Father. And so part of what we're doing as we see Jesus interact with the suffering of people is we are shaping our understanding of God's good character, okay? He is not powerless to address our struggles, and he is not indifferent to them either, Our God is a God of both power and compassion, might and mercy. We've also seen in these miracle accounts, we have the opportunity to learn about ourselves because we're observing people from all different walks of life with all different kinds of problems. They're coming to Jesus and they're seeking his help. And last but not least, in the teachings and miracles of Jesus, we see a common theme that interweaves beautifully with the overall theme of the scriptures. Because as Jesus provides for needs, as he heals the sick, as he casts out demons, we get a glimpse of his ultimate redemptive intention, the culmination of the rescue plan that he first spoke about back in Genesis 3, where he said his appointed servant would crush the head of the deceiver and would bring full restoration of every single thing that has been ravaged by the effects of sin in this world. And so we're thankful for all that God has been teaching us through this series, and we know these are going to continue. Now, to give you some context heading into this, just before this miracle account that we're going to talk about, it's the man with the withered hand, the disciples were picking heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath. So they're kind of walking through the field, they're picking off heads of grain, they're hungry, and they're eating them. So the Pharisees, they try to get mouthy with Jesus about the fact that they're breaking Sabbath rules, and The last thing Jesus says to them in response to this challenge is the first thing we're going to read today, okay? So the very first thing we read is the last thing Jesus said to them as they tried to give him, you know, throw shade at him about his disciples eating some grain as they walked, okay? So here we go. Matthew chapter 12, verse 8. Here's what Jesus said. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Woo! Is that my Jesus or what? Come on now. They're coming talking about, well, what about the Sabbath rules here, Jesus? Jesus, we have an issue. We see that they're picking grain. That looks a lot like work. And Jesus is like, yeah, 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 I hear you guys, but there's just there's one thing you forgot to remember. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> oh, that's my king. All right. I like that. All right, so we're in verse 9. Here we go. So departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, what man is there among you who has sheep and if it falls into a pit, sorry, who has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So he makes a very definitive statement. It's not a question. So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Amen. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Now, in case I forget to say it later, this is another one of those places where when Jesus says, 
There's a reason these guys are ticked enough to leave here and try to figure out how to destroy this guy. It's because Jesus, in no uncertain terms, when he says the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, and he's talking about himself, that he is claiming equality and, and, and even authority with God. Okay, So these guys... Their eyes are closed to the reality of who Jesus is, and for somebody to be claiming that is clearly blasphemous. So there's a reason that they're upset. It's because they're blind. It, it, they can't understand. But we need to see here, because there, there are those who, who will claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. There are those that will say, well, uh, he, he wasn't clear about who he was. He was so clear about who he was. That's why his enemies killed him. Lord of the Sabbath, everybody there knew what that meant. Because the Sabbath harkens all the way back to creation, which we'll get to in a minute. Okay, So here, what's the big question the Pharisees try to lob at Jesus here? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Okay, Now, I know for us, to our modern ear, this kind of sounds like a totally ridiculous question, doesn't it? What do you mean? But the Pharisees, they lived by a code of conduct, uh, some of which was God-ordained, but some of, of the other of it was man-made additions. And according to part of that, the Mishnah, this was one of the books of rules that they followed, it was lawful to administer medical attention or to rescue somebody on the Sabbath only if their life was in danger, right? This is part of what happens in legalism. You realize, okay, so we're thinking what God means by Sabbath is, that means no works, that means we couldn't administer medical attention, we couldn't lift a bandage in order to put it on somebody, or we couldn't free somebody who had, you know, been, something collapsed on them. That, that would be work, so we can't do that. But the, you start to realize, well, that's so crazy. Surely that's not what God means. So that we, we have to start making exceptions to the rules to kind of try to build this system. And that's why it gets so broad and weird with all these particulars. That's, that's what legalism does, okay? So Jesus shuts that down. He responds here by showing them the foolishness of legalism and how it misses the whole point of the benevolent boundaries that God has given us, okay? Okay. Um, these guys see the man with this deformation in his hand, and instead of feeling compassion on him, they instantly see him as a case study for an intellectual argument. Or worse yet, they see him as a way to trap Jesus into incriminating himself according to their rules. Okay? Jesus uses this example of, of a sheep that falls into a pit he uses that as an analogy to get to his big point. His big point is, yes, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. I, you know, I don't want to infer Jesus' tone in here, but I feel pretty confident that this, this was like a, are you kidding me, guys, tone. Yes, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You know what I mean? Like, come on. This, this is the vibe I'm getting from this. So, uh, <laughs> what part, part of what... Part of what, by hitting him with the sheep thing and comparing their willingness to do that but not help this man, what he's saying to them is, guys, if, if observing a day of Sabbath has become a way for you to feel devoted and pious and more holy than others, then you never understood the point to begin with of why God ever instituted a Sabbath. You're way out there in right field in the weeds, okay? Every command God gives us has to be viewed through the supreme command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is, you know, to use Tolkien's language, he's got one ring to rule them all. That's the one command that rules them all, okay? If you don't know who Tolkien is, he wrote Lord of the Rings. And if you didn't know that, come see me after the service, okay? 
Uh, I got other things to talk to you about. <laughs> I have a whole world to show you. <laughs> okay, I'm kidding. You don't have to come talk to me if you don't want to. Uh, so, but here's what's, here's what's tough about this, okay? Here's what's tough about this situation. Besides Jesus, these guys trying to trap him were probably the smartest guys in the room. So you got Jesus and these guys. They were probably at the top, Okay. They probably had tons of scripture memorized. They could, prob- they could pontificate for days about history and facts and applications of the Hebrew Bible. That's who we're dealing with. That makes this complicated. But here's the thing. Jesus came to show us something we could never have understood without his life, his death, and his resurrection. I'm going to pull, first of all, this principle I'm talking about from 1 Corinthians 13 too. Uh, if you've been around Bible teaching, any amount of time, you've been to a wedding in the last hundred years, you've probably heard this, okay? 1 Corinthians 13, 2, it says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, are you letting yourself connect with that? If you know all mysteries and all knowledge, where do you rate in today's society? If that guy existed, or gal, existed, I know all mysteries and all knowledge. They're a baller, Right? We're going to listen to them. They're going to have authority. And if I have all faith is to remove mountains. So if I got all that going for me, but do not have love, I am nothing. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says this, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant. One translation says knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. (laughs) But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So what does that say? Knowledge makes arrogant. Does it say knowledge improperly applied makes arrogant? I'm asking. It's not a trick question. It's a real easy one. Knowledge, it gives no qualifiers. It doesn't say knowledge if you use it wrong Whatever, whatever, whatever. And you're, I know you're getting scared. You're like, hold on, what's he, is he on an assault against knowledge? No, not at all. But I'm trying to get us to prioritize these things the way God does. Okay? There is an order and hierarchy. And it's much more important to have love than it is to have more knowledge. It's much more important to understand what God means when he says love than to have more knowledge. Because here's what you need to understand. Every single little factoid that you cram into your cranium, increasing your IQ or making you smarter, with it comes the temptation to feel prideful about the fact that you're smarter. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes arrogant. But love edifies. But love is others-focused. Okay? So I'm not saying don't get smarter. Study. Absolutely. Yes. In, In all areas that you can. But make sure you're aware of the temptation that comes with it. And make sure you're growing also in love to balance that out. Amen. Uh, there's, I, I, heard, I heard something recently that is so, it's one of those things, it, it is so simple, but it's profound, and it's been ringing in my heart and in my ears since I heard it. Uh, there's a guy that I know, I call him Uncle Chuck because he's like a, he's not my uncle, but he's like an uncle. You know what I mean? Like stereotypical king of one-liners, just one of those guys, right? Like, real fun to have around, you know, funny, but kind of zany, you know, really zany, actually. He's just, he's one of them guys, man. Like, he's, you're going to know he's in the room, okay? Uncle Chuck. So, 
uh, he's got one of these one of these one-liners. He'll say, uh, "Well, just do something, even if it's wrong." It's like, "Ooh, man, that makes me so nervous that you say that," and and like, <laughs> and you mean it. <laughs> you want people to listen to you. So he, you know, and uh, super like, he's an older brother in the faith, um, and he's been walking with the Lord a long time. Like strong man of faith has has given much of his life to. Uh, build farms and, and help orphans and handicapped kids in other countries and just done a, a ton of amazing work, walked by faith. This, this guy is a genuine believer and somebody that, uh, he's, he's not somebody that's going to probably sit down and, and have a real long discussion with you about the finer points of theology, um, but man, he lives, he lives his faith. Um, and I think, so he was talking about somebody that was talking to him and, and maybe I get the sense that this person maybe is more uh, theologically adept and maybe more focused on being learned and things of that than like like that than Chuck would be, and and this person was was saying to Chuck, well, hey, I mean, why don't you why don't you get in a Bible study or something? Like it seemed like he didn't give all the context of the conversation, but it was almost like maybe he said something crazy, and this person was like, maybe you should get in a Bible study, you know? Like I don't know, he didn't say all that, but but that was kind of the vibe I was getting off of it. And, and, he's, and his response was, he said, listen, I, I love God's word. I read God's word, always have, always will. But he said, in terms of getting into another Bible study, he said, this is, this is the thing, the simple, profound thing that has been ringing, and, and I, it's messing me up in a good way. He said, I already know more than I do. I'm going to say it again for you because I don't think it hits you hard enough. I'm going to, I already know more than I do. Now, please, I'm going to right now take a break and say, don't hear me say growing in our learning of doctrine and theology is not important. It absolutely is. But we have a serious problem, in my view, many times of thinking that what we need is more information <laughs> or more knowledge or something. That's going to get us to the place where we finally feel the breakthrough or whatever, but man, there's a real, it like smacked me right upside my head to think about how much more I know than I do. And why am I spending a bunch of energy trying to know more till I do the things I already know? With some kind of like efficacy, right? So I hope you're getting smacked for the next few weeks by that because I have been and it won't leave me alone. Like I'm really starting to run, like run, where I'm exerting my energy and what I'm doing through that grid, like there's a bunch of just simple things Jesus has asked me to do that I, I, could, I could definitely do more of that. <laughs> and I'm not sure it's new information that's, that's what's missing <laughs> in me growing. And that's, it's pitiful, isn't it? I mean, sometimes there's so many simple things we, we already know to do that we just, we leave those on the wayside and, and we, it's, Listen, man, it's easier to go get smarter than it is to go out and share our faith with somebody else. It's easier to go get smarter or, or think that we are um, than, than give our life to go love others and, and pay the price to make sure that they know Jesus loves them. I don't know. I, yeah, it is good. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank Uncle Chuck. Brother got me. Um. You guys hear me? Like, I'm just going to talk to you like family for a second because we're all here and that's who we are. So, I'm, again, I don't want to hear people around here saying, well, I don't ever go to Bible studies anymore because Pastor Vince said that's not what I'm saying. 
You with me on that? Study your Bible, okay? But, man, let's, let's factor that whole thought into how we allocate time, energy, resources. Some of us um, are happy to do two, three Bible studies a week, put a bunch of hours into this, that, and the other podcast and whatnot, feeling like we're... And here's the thing, man. Uh, when, when we're only taken in and it's, it's not pouring out, that stuff that goes in turns stagnant. That's, you know, that's how a pond gets real nasty. When, it, when water only can go into it but it doesn't have a way to flow out, you get all that green stuff and it starts, that water becomes useless. And that's part of how God designed us, man. Yes, keep bringing stuff in as God allows, but, but you got to be pouring it out too. And, and I know sometimes, listen, Satan's a master at convincing you that, well, you ain't got any business trying to pour out into others because you don't you're messed up in this way or this way or this is wrong with you or whatever, let, let me help you with something. The qualification for you to go and to spread the good news of the gospel is that you know the good news of the gospel. Okay? Um, I know you're lacking a bunch of other stuff that you'll probably need along the way, but that's the beautiful thing about following Jesus is he'll come and fill in all those gaps. He'll help you. Start, get to stepping. Amen. Preaching to myself too, all right? Don't feel salty. We're all in it together. Okay. I'm going to get off of that now because I could spend way more time there, but I, some other things I, want, I think we should see here. So I, I also think it's worth pointing out, I think it's striking how bold we can be in our man-made conclusions and assertions sometimes. It's amazing. It's amazing that these guys are still asking Jesus Sabbath questions after the verbal spanking they just received over the grain incident. I mean, are you kidding me? You're going to go in on Jesus about Sabbath again, boys? Woo, come on now. Wake up. What does that tell us? What do we, what do, we do there? Oh, those Pharisees were very stupid. No, no, no. <laughs> no. I, that means I have that tendency. I have that tendency to be that foolishly legalistic about whatever my pet thing is, about whatever I'm real amped up about, right? So here's what we need to do. We must guard our hearts vigilantly and ask for the Holy Spirit's help to stay free from the falsehood of self-righteous supremacy where we feel superior to others, even if only in the areas we feel strongest in, right? These guys were very good at knowing the law, very good at observing the rules, not so good at compassion, but they were very good at, their, at that thing they thought they were very good at. And so that, that's what they were going to come and try to hammer Jesus with. Well, as Jesus does, he turns it on their head and has them looking foolish. But we, we need him to do that for us too. <laughs> we need to see how foolish sometimes our <clears throat> self-righteous sense of supremacy is. Amen. And so what, what am I saying there? I'm, I'm saying let's really pray about that. Let's acknowledge we all have that tendency. Let's, let's acknowledge we all feel like we're doing good in some way, and we, we'd like to look down on others because they're not doing that good in that part. And here's the thing, man. That's no bueno. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, okay? Uh, all right, so that's, that's enough learning from the the dingus actions of the Pharisees here. Let's move on. So I think there's something else here we can observe that's, that's, that's just helpful in building our faith about the way God does things, okay? Uh, an interesting facet of this account is, is the way that this man receives healing. 
okay, because it's quite different than the miracle we studied last week. Brother Adam did a great job last week leading us through the miracle uh, where the dead man was being brought out. Uh, he was the son of a widow, so man, she was in a real rough position at that point uh, in her cultural context, and Jesus touches the coffin and the dead man rises, okay? And so uh, that's, that's different. Adam pointed out to us in that case that that man didn't ask to be healed, it didn't seem from the text that anybody really asked that. Jesus was moved with compassion upon the woman and upon the son, and he touched the coffin, and up he came, right? Awesome. God and his sovereignty decided to do that. That's beautiful. And sometimes that's the way God heals. It seems as if the person received the healing, uh, their faith was not involved at all. Was the dead man's faith involved? No, he was dead. Same with Lazarus, correct? Absolutely. But then we have this miracle where the way it reads, it seems that if this man had not stretched his hand out in faith and obedience, his hand would not have been healed. Jesus said, stretch out your hand, and it's in that stretching his hand was restored. It's in that responding in faith. Now, for me, it's hard to understand how, but perhaps someone could argue that this man stretching out his hand in faith and obedience to Jesus was not required to be healed. That, to me, would be a difficult argument to defend, but I'll just grant that it could happen. But honestly, there is no denying many instances, for example, the woman with the issue of blood who comes up and touches the hem of Jesus' garment. There was no conversation beforehand. She just, in faith, in her own heart, said, if I can touch that man's cloak, I'll be healed of this issue that I've had for 12 years. And she sneaks up and she touches it. And what happens? Jesus turns and says, daughter, your faith has healed you. So what do we do with this, right? Jesus brings a dead man to life where his faith could not have been a factor, but he heals many others, and it seems like the miracle hinged on their faith. We have many times where large crowds were around Jesus and only a few received healing. But verse 15, if you read right where we're at, right here, verse 15 says, but Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all. So sometimes Jesus will walk by a thousand sick people and heal one person. Sometimes a whole crowd follows him, and what does it say? Everyone got healed. How does healing work then? <laughs> is, it, is it only a sovereign act of God and our faith doesn't matter? Or does God heal as a result of people's faith? You know the answer, Love City. Yes. Obviously, right? Now, we don't like that answer because we like formulas. We like more definition to it than this. We would like to go pick our proof verses and pick one because it's more comfortable because I don't understand how, wait, wait, sometimes God does it sovereignly just because he wanted to and their faith wasn't involved, but, but sometimes he said, your faith has made you whole. You know, it's like, does not compute, right? <laughs> <laughs> this, 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 let's be honest, it's okay. This seems at odds. This seems to be one of those things where we need to go find our best proof verses and argue with the people we disagree about. That's is what it seems like we got here. But friends, God is sovereign. And in his sovereignty, he can deal with different people in different ways according to the glorious mystery of his divine wisdom and will. He gets to do what he wants. 
you get that card when you say, let there be light, and there is light. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Amen. Boy, I'm glad that's our God. Man, you could be hooked up in some weird cult, religion, fake thing, serving some lesser demonic God. Man, you're serving the real God. I hope you've said thank you to him for that today. Man. Whoo. Now, the third option that we haven't discussed, so we just, we just blew a bunch of people's argument fodder apart and, and showed that, honestly, it, God can do whatever he wants, and he does it some ways sometimes, some ways another, and there's not a great answer for, like, well, I need a chart. Sorry. You're not getting one. <laughs> it's not real plain, even what determines why God does it one way one time and not another. But the third option we haven't discussed is that sometimes God doesn't heal on this side of eternity at all. Sometimes healing is not realized until the great and glorious day where we stand in his presence unhindered by sin any longer. Sometimes that's what happens. And, and guys, there are many brilliant theologians that I could quote at this moment to drive home this point. But I'm, I'm not sure it can be said any better than I heard my kids say it recently. And so I'm going to quote them. Here's what happened. Uh, most of you know, if you don't, you're about to. Uh, not this week, but the week before, I got ran into a median by a semi. Almost killed me. Everybody that saw it thought I should have been dead, at least gone to the hospital. You know, and I strolled out and you know, drank my diet at Mountain Dew and talked to the truck driver while we waited for the police. Shouldn't have gone that way, but it did. By God's grace, amen, hallelujah, amen, okay? But this gave me an opportunity to ask my kids some questions that I, I thought would be good to ask them. And, and I told this story once, and somebody said, whoa, you said that to your kids? And um, yeah, I did. And I think we should say things like this to our kids. So I had them in the car, came, remember, I think we were going hiking or something. It doesn't matter. That detail is not important. But here's what's important. I asked them, okay, guys, you know daddy got in that wreck. So what if I would have died? What if I would have died in that wreck? How would you have felt? Okay. So Max's first answer was something like, I would have felt like I had the best dad ever. He probably wanted candy. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, that's not, I'm joking. I'm kind of goofing on him because he is uh, a garbage disposal, but um, he meant it. Really, he was just, pro he really was processing like, well, I would have felt like I had a really good dad and, and, you know, amen. And Lucy's answer to that question, what if I would have died was, well, I'd, I'd be really sad, but I would also be really happy because I would trust that you were with Jesus. I said, okay, that's pretty good. All right. So here's what, so I pushed him farther. I said, well, but I want to know how you would feel towards God if daddy would have died in that truck accident. How would you feel towards God? Would you be mad towards God? And Max piped right in. He said, no. I said, why, buddy? He said, and I quote, because God's good and everything he does is right. Max is six. I probably should have said that at the beginning. And here's what, here's what I'm telling you. I want you to know that's not a canned answer. That's not something we've just trained them to say. I don't know that you could train someone to give a canned answer to a question like that. They were both back there misty-eyed, really thinking about how it would be for them, what feelings they would be experiencing if, if daddy would have died in that truck accident. And I can also tell you this, part of the reason he was able to answer that way is because just a few months ago, we walked through these same questions when Audie Benson went home to be with, home, went home to be with the Lord. 
And, and that's, how, that's part of how he was prepared to process it when I hit him with this, thinking about what, what if daddy would have died. I, listen, man, I, you know, there was a time when I believed that the height of faith was to believe without any doubt that God was going to do what I think he should do. I was taught that. I was taught that if I was sick, the height of faith was to believe that God will heal me. Today I know the height of faith is not to believe that I can demand God does anything, but to trust that in every situation, whatever God does is good. That's the height of faith. That's the kind of faith that allowed those three Hebrew boys to stare at Nebuchadnezzar and say, you know what? Um, God can save us from this furnace, but if he doesn't, he's still good. So do what you're going to do. That's the height of trust and faith in God. Amen. I'm glad I can learn from my kids. Okay, the last thing I want to show you here is, uh, we're going to kind of loop back around to this language of Jesus saying he's the Lord of the Sabbath. I know I kind of tilted my hand a little bit at the beginning about how excited I was, but I saved it for the end. So, uh, and, and, and this idea that because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, that, that he, through his gospel, can bring us true rest, okay? So, I mean, this, a lot of this miracle centers around this Sabbath controversy, and I don't know if you're aware, but there's a lot of Sabbath controversy. I don't have time to address all the arguments about what day of the week should be the Sabbath. Part of why I'm not going to do that is because those miss the point anyways, okay? So please don't get in online arguments with people about what day the Sabbath should be. Go read Romans 14 and chill out, all right? That's all I'm going to say about that. But I want to give you a glimpse of some of the glory contained in Jesus saying that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. There's a lot of things Jesus called himself, but for him to say this, okay? So our understanding of what all that means, our understanding of Sabbath in general, it goes back to the creation account, okay? So when God created, you know, it was, he did this, he did this, he did this, and at the end he would say, uh, and, he, and he said that that's good, right? Created light, that's good. Created land, that's good. Animals, that's good. And then at the end, he, he got done with all of it, and he said, it's very good. And then it says on the seventh day, he rested. And that's always been kind of a, <clears throat> I think, a hard thing for people to understand. It was for me for a long time. Like, why is the Bible talking about God resting? We're talking about this supreme creator God, inexhaustible in his might. Like, it wasn't that the act of creation tired him, right? So that he needed a rest. So what, what is that language even about? And, 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 and it's, we, we see it, if we think about it, it's like, oh, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. See, Jesus, God rests, well, I mean, Jesus was there, but I don't have time to explain the Trinity to you right now or get into all that. So everyone was there. Woo, it was a party, creation. But God didn't, he, he didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because the job was finished. <laughs> Come oh, you don't get it yet. Okay, we're going to keep going. See, here's the thing. He wasn't tired. The job was finished, so he could sit back, so he could. That's the kind of rest that God wants to provide. That's, it's not about leisure, okay? What else did Jesus say? Jesus said, come all who are weary, for I will give you rest. That's right. What did he mean? Did he mean, come, everyone come to me, because I know your life is so busy, and when you come to me, I'll make it so that you get more vacation days, more leisure in your life, is that, what it, is that what it's about? That you'll get more naps. I mean, I'm down with naps, but 
That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus said, so we see this thing. He's Lord of the Sabbath. One of the things he says, come all who are weary, I will give them rest. We're seeing, we're seeing I'm, I'm trying to thread this needle for you. So, so what is this rest? What is the rest that God's talking about? What is the rest God took? And let, let me say this. I, I'm kind of making fun of leisure or thinking that this would be talking about leisure. Leisure can be taken to the glory of God, okay? I'm not guilt tripping you about your vacay, all right? I take them too. But, but what I will make fun of is our foolish thought process that, that, the, that sense of, of fatigue that we often feel, like that deep fatigue that comes from the grind all the time, when we foolishly think that vacation is going to fix that, we are silly. There was other words in my head and I had to filter them. We're silly, man. Vacation doesn't, doesn't cure the deep fatigue, man of trying to traverse a world broken by sin. That's not it. Leisure can be taken for the glory of God, but it's not that. And I want to make sure I say this. Taking actual time for Sabbath and worship is a way to declare your trust and dependency upon God. I'm not saying we should not have built into our weekly rhythm Sabbath and that be set aside for worship in the way that God set that pattern from creation. I'm not, I'm not coming after that, but I want to go deeper there's something deeper here I'm trying to show you, okay? I'm trying to, I'm trying to give you the key to the, some shackles that you wear willingly oftentimes. And if you'll just take it and stick it in there and turn it, man, mm, you can feel some freedom here. This is, this is going to help us. The, the rest that Jesus is talking about, it's, it's, it's rest from the constant internal struggle of not feeling like you measure up. It's freedom from slavery to this performance-based value we're always doing. We're always trying to, to, to prove to ourselves and to others that we're worth something. We try to do that through work. We try to do that through parenting well. We try to do that in ministry. He's f the rest, and, and how did I make all that connection? When God rested, the kind of rest he's talking about, it's because the job was done. The rest that Jesus is inviting us to is for you to understand that to the degree that it talks about, the degree that your worth is established by the justification that comes by being made righteous by faith in Christ alone, the job is finished. Your worth is established. Your value's been determined by an authority far higher than how you feel today, if I may say so. Jesus said it is finished, and part of what was finished was the ceaseless striving of mankind to try to earn God's love or to have a stable sense of value and worth. That's part of what was finished. Jesus said it's finished. God said all he made, including humans, was good. And then sin, in all its various ways, it's ruined all of us. But Jesus made a way for us to be made good again by faith, because he took the punishment for all of our bad so that we could be made good once more. So the question is, friends, if that's true, the question is, can we look at our lives and all that God has done and say, it's good? It's good in that sense that I can, I can rest because of what he's done and what he's doing, what he's promised to do. Can we find contentment in his promises that even the things that haven't been made right yet will be eventually?
Can you rest? I know you can see stuff that's still broken. I know you can see things that have yet to be brought together. But friend, (laughs) there's rest for you. Real rest. Can we rest in the finished work of the Lord of the Sabbath and be free from the striving that leaves us exhausted and unable to engage in our mission of letting others know that they can find rest too? So many of us, I think, get boxed out of gospel mission in in meaningful ways because if we're just honest, we're tired. But we're tired because when we come to the Lord of the Sabbath, we don't receive the rest that he honestly and, and, and earnestly wants to provide for us. He wants to free you from the torture of the inner monologue. He wants to free you from constantly, all the time, running the tape, trying to find some place where you can land and feel like it's okay. I'm okay. You are, but only because of what Christ has done. Now, if you're here today, friend, and you have not trusted Jesus, I want you to know there's rest available for you too. But the first step for you is to stop running and stop pretending that you're not tired to bow your knee, and to receive the loving lordship of King Jesus. You don't have to live like this. You don't have to live haggard and and ran ragged all the time. Jesus has said, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. You can find rest in the sovereign lordship of Jesus. Let him take care of you. It's not working when you're doing it anyways. You know that. Trust him. He's worthy of it. As I, as I thought through these things, I couldn't, I don't want to, but I couldn't keep this verse of, of one of my favorite hymns out of my mind. It says, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled and when strivings cease. That's what it's talking about, friends. It's talking about real rest. That God kind of rest. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. Praise God. May we be free from the foolishness of legalism. May we forever be enamored at God's mysterious sovereignty. And may each one of us drink deep, of the soul-refreshing Sabbath rest that only Jesus can supply. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for these verses. Thank you for this miracle. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are Lord of the Sabbath. (laughs) Thank you that we don't have to live in the clutches and in the slavery of legalism. Thank you, God, that we are freed from having to make up rules to fix our rules and and come up with some way to build this shaky scaffold we think is going to reach you. Thank you, God, that you set us free from all that mess and you've shown us that right standing and righteousness with you being made good again, it's not about what we can do, it's about what you've done. Thank you that righteousness can be attained by faith, that we can reach out to you and trust what you've said and be made whole all of the brokenness be fixed. Thank you, God, that as we come to you and we're justified by faith, you've also told us that that isn't the 
the end of the entire story, but that's the beginning of us running a race with you and that you continue to shape and mold us, to form and make us into something that more and more resembles you. And so, God, we submit to that process of sanctification. We are thankful, Lord, that you are long-suffering and patient and kind and merciful. And that, God, when we try to hop off that potter's wheel and do our own thing yet again, you pick us back up in love. You keep molding and you keep shaping. Thank you, God, for this promise of rest. Help us to take you up on it. God, help us. Set us free from those internal strivings of being motivated to do things, trying to prove something. God, please continue to set us free from the fatigue that comes in striving ceaselessly, trying to do things that you have already said you've provided. Thank you that we are valuable in your eyes. Thank you that we do have worth, and that worth is measured by what you paid for us, the precious blood of Christ. So I thank you that you made us, that you love us, that you've got a plan for us, that you're working on us, that you won't give up on us, that you're faithful in all that you've said. God, I thank you for the truth that you are sovereign and that you get to do things the way you want to do it. Father, forgive us for trying to stick you in a box. Forgive us for trying to restrict you into categories that we can label and we can understand totally. God, help us to embrace fully with joy this truth. We cannot understand all that you are, all that you do, you're far above and beyond anything we could possibly imagine. Thank you, God, that we are never going to totally figure you out. So we can worship you instead. <laughs> Lord, help us to take that posture. It's the only right one. Lord, we love you. We're excited about these things. We're thankful for the teaching of your word. But, Lord, we don't want to be hearers only. We want to be doers. God, help us. Help us to stop cramming stuff into our heads and ignoring the things we already know. Please empower us to be obedient children. You said, Lord, in your word that if we love you, we'll obey you. So God, we don't want to be a people that just talk with our lips about loving you. We want to back it up with our lives. Please help us, anoint us, and empower us to do that for your glory, first and foremost, but also for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.